Unloose the goose. We'll take no use. Your paradigm's run out of time and we've got no use. Unloose the goose. Okay, we're live with Unloose the Goose. We've done so many episodes, I don't even know which one this is. I guess it's episode 10, the big the big 10 spot here. And this is an agorist podcast with a gaggle of geese, agorist podcast hosts. We got Pete Q, Sal Mayweather, Jack Spearco, CJ, Professor CJ with the Dangerous History Podcast, and today we're joined by a special guest, none other than Derek Bros at D Bros Live Free, and we invited him on because today we're going to be talking about technocracy, which is a term a lot of people aren't familiar with, even though this philosophy, this strategy has really infiltrated many different aspects of our lives, and if we don't put a stop to it and push back, we're going to be focusing on solutions today a whole lot as well then it'll definitely play a major role in the future of our civilization. Technocracy is the topic of the day. I want to invite you to check out the website, UnlooseTheGoose.com, where you can see all of the previous videos on YouTube as well as the podcast if you're more of an audio person. And you can also subscribe to our newsletter. And then even though you might be able to see Nicole's picture down there, we couldn't do this without her because she's our technical guru and she does, she's really a workhorse. So shout out to Nicole real quick. We can all tip our hats to her and everything she does on the back end. She actually has a Kickstarter going on right now. It's a custom Kickstarter that she built herself at kickstarthollerroast.com, kickstarthollerroast.com. It's H-O-L-L-E-R. So her business is, uh, coffee. And she sells ground coffee and unground coffee. And she does, she wants to do all the roasting and upgrade her system there. So we want to support her. She's really gone pretty far to reaching her goal. It's an $18,000 goal. She's got 16170 So, uh, show her some support for all the great info and all the great podcasts that she's putting out. And let's, let's push her over the edge. Again, that's kickstarthollerroast.com. All right. Let's get right down to it. The topic today is technocracy, which is essentially a political system that is ruled by experts and scientists and technocrats. This is, it diverges from democracy, which is supposed to be ruled by the people, right? But really it's, you know, ruled by the elite for the most part. And the technocrats don't like the democracy. They think that the experts should be in power. We agorists, we also don't like the democracy. But we're not pushing for a technocracy. We're pushing for self-governance at the end of the day. So before we get into the topic, uh, before we hear from Derek, maybe you can give us a little history on the topic. Let's just uh, check in with everybody. How's everybody doing tonight? Good. How you doing, Jack? We missed you last week. Yeah, I was. Uh, I don't know what I was doing. I did something. <laughs> something. I did something. Anti-state stuff going on there. Yeah, no, it's definitely anti-state. Cool. Anybody drinking anything sophisticated today? I'm non-sophisticated today, man. I got LaCroix. It's LaCroix. LaCroix. Sophisticated LaCroix. LaCroix. Rare example of me hitting the booze on a weekday. Tomorrow is my birthday. Happy birthday. So I have, uh, yeah, thank you. I have. Starting early. Um, yeah, I'm not showing up to work virtually tomorrow. 
So it's a rare case of me imbibing on a Wednesday. So it is the local distillery just up the road from me, St. Augustine Distillery Bourbon. Very good stuff on the rocks. Keep it local. I'm drinking some good old high, some high quality H2O. It's always good. (laughs) off the crater. All right. Well, let's, let's start off with our buddy down there, Derek Bros. Uh, Bros, if you could first introduce yourself, uh, some of your activism, you've done a whole lot in your career of activism. We work together on the Freedom Cell Network, but introduce our audience to your activism. And then perhaps you could start by giving us your understanding of technocracy. And I think it's good to start with the beginning and the roots and maybe a little bit of the history as far as where this concept came about. So thanks, thanks, thanks again for joining us, Derek. Yeah, can you guys hear me okay? Yep. Yep. Okay, cool. Uh, so, sorry, I was just breaking up a little bit on my end, but I think you were asking me to uh, break down technocracy, right, John? Yeah, yeah. Derek's down in, in Moriela, Mexico. <laughs> right now, so maybe the connection isn't so hot. But first, before you break down technocracy, if you could introduce yourself to the audience. Sure. Yeah, so um, I've been doing activism and journalism for the last decade. Started back in 2010 in Houston, where I'm originally from. Uh, created an activist group that kind of evolved into an agorist community called the Houston Freethinkers, and then created the website and channel, the Conscious Resistance, and have written for a dozen different of you know alternative independent media outlets. Uh, I have a radio show in Houston on 90.1 KPFT, and uh, you know anarchist agorist trying to help people find solutions to all the crazy things we're dealing with. And like you said, I moved to Mexico and I'm out here looking for land to start building the community that, uh, that I've envisioned for a few years. And part of the reason is because of the growth of the technocracy is, uh, you know, Mexico's a little bit further behind in development of that as far as the U S goes. And yeah, so that's kind of who I am and what I'm doing. And I most recently, I wrote a book called how to opt out of the technocratic state, which is just came out earlier this year. And it deals with, how agorism and counter-economics, I believe, are the solution to the growth of the technocratic state and to, you know, looking at what technocracy is itself. So, as you said, John, it's a political theory, a strategy that sees experts and uh, specifically like technical, technological experts as the people who should be managing governments and uh, promoting technology-focused solutions. And they said, starting when they started talking about this, saying that this would lead to better management of resources, is pr- protecting the planet. And again, it's envisioned as technological experts and their technology, essentially, essentially managing everything in society. So it's definitely no, I'd say no friend to anybody who cares about individual liberty. And it also involves a loss of privacy. Uh, and as I said, centralization and management of all human behavior. And you mentioned earlier, John, that a lot of people don't really know about it, even though this philosophy still does guide a lot of what is happening in our world, especially today with these. uh, We're seeing a lot of technocratic technological um, solutions being proposed in response to COVID-19, you know, facial recognition, drones all over the place. A lot of this stuff is pushing us towards the technological world where you're either a part of that system, like social credit scores, or you get locked out. And um, it's. It goes back, you know, a, a good ways, but I, most people point to the early uh, 1900s. Uh, Howard Scott is one of the guys. He was the founder of what was called the Technical Alliance in New York City and eventually leading to what was called the uh, Committee of Technocracy at Columbia University in 1932. 
And then it just continued to evolve. In 1938, you get Technology Incorporated, which released this publication where they say specifically, technocracy is the science of social engineering, the scientific operation of the entire social mechanism to produce and distribute goods and services to the entire population of this continent. And so you have that sort of time period of it. And then it continued to evolve, but it seemed to lost a little bit of favor in the mainstream once the Great Depression happened. And pretty much people were pushing more towards socialism and socialistic solutions for the government. And it seems like technocracy was not as popular, but it did continue to exist. And the people, the proponents of it continued to talk about it and push forward all the way up into the 1970s when a well-known, um, I guess you could call him globalist technocrat, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was involved in helping create al-Qaeda to fight the Russians. He released his book called Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era. So he kind of went from calling it technocracy to technotronic, but essentially what he describes is the same thing. You know, it's uh, it's management of society, and he describes a world in which the scientific and technological elite basically essentially plan all the lives of humanity. And this is just a brief quote from he says, the post-industrial society is becoming a technotronic society, a society that is shaped culturally, psychologically, socially and economically by the impact of technology and electronics. The industrial process is no longer the principal determinant of social change. And he just continues to go on. He describes biochemical means of human um, control and augmentation and just how to direct the world in that way. And, uh, yeah, so this, this philosophy has been well known among Zbigniew Brzezinski. Of course, he's buddies with people like Henry Kissinger and these sort of always in the background status that never disappear and always seem to influence governments. And, you know, they're sort of revered for, uh, their worldviews. And Zbigniew Brzezinski is also him and Kissinger both are the kind of people who think in this way and believe that, you know, the world is their grand chessboard in order to, you know, kind of manipulate and use as they please. So in the book, I talk about that origin and show how now we're kind of coming up to the modern era of that, where technology plays a major role in all of our lives. And the biggest, most um, wealthy and influential CEOs are people from Microsoft, Amazon, uh, uh, Google, of course, Facebook. These people are those names and faces, the sort of technocratic class. And many of them have a vision, uh, Elon Musk as well have a similar vision of them being the ones being able to centrally manage and, and plan out society. So yeah, I've probably said enough right now, but that's, that's kind of the back, a little bit of background on technocracy and how I think it's playing into where we're at right now. It's like an agorist worth, worst nightmare. Anybody have any commentary or analysis or thoughts on technocracy as what was the name of that book, Derek, that you wrote what was the name of the book. Uh, how to opt out of the technocratic state. Okay, just make a note for myself here. So I have kind of a question for Derek on that, and it is where where is the, the line or the overlap between what is a technocracy in your mind versus what is simply the oligarchs using technology, right? Like Because we hear the term technocracy and we hear the term oligarchy, right? And the way I'm hearing that described, it just very much sounds like the oligarchs have shifted to technological oligarchs that are using their technology as part of their their methodology of ruling, where there is a school of thought on technocracy that is more of the lines of, like, the scientists should be in charge, uh, that type of thing that's maybe independent of what we're talking about here. Uh, could you repeat that last part, Jack? I'm sorry, the connection was just breaking up. Just yeah, no problem. Like, so there is sentence. like, sorry. If, if you look at the classic concept of, of a of a technocratic system, there is just simply 
one view is that the really smart people should be in charge. Like that's who we should make a president is a really smart scientist guy or something where what we're really talking about today and what's really, though that would be probably terrible too. Uh, but what seems like really we're talking about today is more like the oligarchs empowered with technology. So is it really technocracy or is it the oligarchy with new tools? Uh, I think it's prob that that answer is not necessarily mutually exclusive, that they do have new tools now. And at the same time, it seems like they're embracing the technocratic sort of philosophy. Um, because if you look at for just again with COVID, everything we're dealing with, every single solution that is being presented by the state is something in like go towards cashless society using digital technology. They want to embrace blockchain, but for their own methods. Um, you know, the hospital, every example is an embrace of technology as the solution and, you know, the, the talk of the great reset. And it, I don't think it's necessarily new in a sense that it, as, as much as now there's an opportunity to roll it out at, at a quicker speed as opposed to maybe a slow drip over time. But I do think that even if the, cause it's not even really about the state, the state plays a role. Of course, everybody on this call knows that the state plays a role in helping a lot of these these technological companies, these uh, survey, Silicon Valley uh, companies, that they benefit from the state and from government. And now it says if, if the Bill Gates of the world and these other folks who are essentially playing are not the technocrat class, uh, they're doing things without even being a part of government. So we don't even have a chance to pretend to vote on it. You know, for example, Bill, Bill Gates saying, I'm going to fund geoengineering of the skies to try to fight climate change. You know, nobody's voting for, on that or asking him. These people who are mostly outside of government but have a relationship with government are seem to be now openly embracing like this idea that they should be the ones to guide this, you know, recovery into the future. Yeah. I don't know if I, I answered that. I think the <laughs> oligarchs sense. and like the power families, the power elite, right? Like the Rockefeller Foundation, Rockefeller family is a perfect example. It's like we want experts, but we are going to be the handlers of the experts. We're going to choose the experts because we could put in a permaculture expert, right? Or an anarchist cryptocurrency expert to help run the economy or something. But it's like, no, we want the experts that are our kind of experts that are all about ushering in this uh, agenda 2030 or this great reset that we can talk about here in a bit. Anybody got any other thoughts or questions or anything? I think that people look at the technocracy and they only so many people just want to focus on surveillance and technology, electronics and everything. But um, the and I think Derek touched a little bit upon this. What you've really seen in the last seven months is don't don't question the experts. Um, yeah, I mean, there is just that is that is the coming technocracy is a part of it is here's your opinion. If you deviate from that, you're a Trump supporter. If you're a Trump supporter, you're a white supremacist. So, you know, they figured out it's pretty powerful. And then you, um, you know, you, you look at things like, um, just read this here to start with, there are techniques of surveillance, hidden video cameras are now used in most stores, computers used to collect vast amounts of information then there are methods of propaganda from which to ma mass communication media provide effective vehicles. Efficient techniques have been developed for winning elections, selling products, influencing public opinion. Talks about the entertainment industry, how they're in on this. And that was Ted Kaczynski warning us 25 years ago <laughs> about this. Wow. Yeah. So this, this doesn't, 
a lot of people would think technocracy and think, you know, like 5G, how 5G can basically spy on you in an instant. You're like almost real time in your information is being shared real time, but that's not all it is. Well, I'll drop the needle on the story much earlier, which is Woodrow Wilson's essay, The Study of Administration, published in 1887. All the way back in 1887, our good friend Woodrow Wilson was importing French and Prussian-German statism into America. And he wrote in this essay that he wanted to make politics more democratic, but he wanted to insulate administration, which is the actual carrying out of government, you know, edicts and whatever, insulate that from politics. So basically politics would get more democratic, but administration would be like separated from for the most part. And so what Woodrow Wilson described all the way back when he was like 30 years old or something in 1887 was he didn't use the word. The word didn't exist yet, but it was technocracy. It was the idea that you needed to put experts in charge of administering uh, the state. Right. And this is the same idea that then surfaces in his good, good buddy, uh, Colonel House, when he writes his novel, Philip Drew Administrator, the same idea. So I I would argue that there's, it goes way back even further. I mean, you could go all the way back to, to Plato's Philosopher Kings if you wanted to, but, um, you know, in terms of the modern version of it or whatever in America, right? Um, that you go back to Woodrow Wilson, um, and kind of progressivism, what I call progressivism version 1.0. And that then this same idea then traces through to uh, the 30s, right? Um, you know, Herbert Hoover famously was a an engineer before getting into politics. And he took that same approach to politics. You know, he was Commerce Secretary in the 20s and then president for one term in the 30s. Um, I did a thing a long time ago about uh, draining the Everglades. And how much that screwed up the environment of South Florida. And Herbert Hoover, who was a progressive Republican, was super important in a lot of the key stages of like getting the Everglades, uh, you know, damming up Lake, o- Lake Okeechobee and all that to make it rational and engineer. It's this whole application of scientism and the engineering mindset, right? Which I'm a big fan of the scientific method. I think the scientific method is one of the greatest innovations of human beings, but when it turns into scientism and it turns into just arguments from authority, right? Because the scientific method is supposed to be very humble. It's supposed to be always skeptical. It's supposed to be always open to the possibility that what we know now isn't the best answer. Um, But when it turns into scientism, it turns into just believe the experts, do whatever they say. What we know now is the truth with a capital T. That's some good history there. Just to connect real quick what you were saying, CJ, with what Pete was saying, they they want their experts, right? They don't want real experts. They want what, what they consider to be experts. And the way they do that is through the growth of the administrative agencies like the DEA or the ATF or one of any of these czars that are <clears throat> political appointees are supposed to be experts. And they they essentially act 
uh, with complete and total immunity of, of law. I mean, the way these executive agencies can just sort of pass a law by writing a memo and all of a sudden the entire country has to abide by it. That's how there's, that's how they're able to sort of institute their expertise into law. And nine out of 10 times it's wrong. And it's Woodrow Wilson's idea of administration, right? So and much they, goes back to that loser. Oh, yeah. That's, that's why I'm doing like a 97 part series just completely dissecting him. Wow. Thank you for that. Yeah, 1913 was a critical year. It was Woodrow Wilson pushing for the League of Nations, which was the predecessor to the United Nations and all this global governance. And then 1913 had the income tax. It had the 16th Amendment, which is the income tax. And then the 17th Amendment, which a lot of people aren't familiar with, it did away with the states electing or choosing, I'm sorry, the state legislatures choosing the U.S. senators, which created an environment where the federal government was more accountable to the states, which would have really helped to enshrine federalism. And then, of course, the Federal Reserve Act was passed in 1913 as well. So it was a really bad year for liberty, and now we see it still affecting us. One one minor correction. Everything you said was right, except for the League of Nations came a bit later. Okay. It was more like 1918, 1919. Yep. Right on. Cool. Well, I think – there's a lot of the, – the whole pandemic thing, I was just reading something. There's this great book called Technocracy Rising by this guy named Patrick Wood, I believe his name is, and he is really solid researcher when it comes to all this technocracy stuff. He's real hip to the whole global governance, secret society, roundtable groups, and stuff like that. And he pointed out the lockstep document. I don't know if we've talked about the lockstep document. It was the Rockefeller Foundation, which, again, is another key entity institution that's – really carrying out their vision of the future. And like the Gates Foundation and Bill Gates, these non-governmental people, NGOs, they have managed to be really influential in shifting the course of history. And so they came out with this document called Lockstep in 2010 and talked about how a a pandemic could come about, people would be wearing masks and all these changes and stuff. So maybe, uh, bros, if if you could elaborate further on some of the specifics, like the application of uh, technocracy and coercion that we see coming to fruition with this pandemic, plandemic, scamdemic, specifically like the COVID pass and this idea that the government will take away privileges like traveling and going to the grocery store or employment. I think this is really we're seeing the whole technocratic um, practice being put into place. And then you have like the there's like robots that can check your temperature and there's these little telescreens you walk up to and it checks if you have a mask on. Can you share with us some of those trends that we're seeing now because of the pandemic? And then more importantly, what people can do about it. Derek, that was for you. You with us? Mexican version of the NSA. Sorry, I think I lost you at the end. Um, yeah, so, I mean, you pretty much covered it with uh, with lockstep there. Um, the lockstep is one scenario out of a four, total of four scenarios that come from this Rockefeller Foundation document called Scenarios for Future Development, where they describe, you know, I guess four yeah, theoretical ways society could go. And in the lockstep one, it describes a pandemic spreading. And it's it's very similar to uh, the event 201, which was found uh, run by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which happened in the months October 2019 before 
this first started to get reported. There's also, we could go back two years to 2017, the U.S. government under the CDC ran another exercise called uh, Crimson Contagion. There was another one called Cladex. I mean, they've been running these exercises several, you know, a, a few times in the last couple of years. Um, and of course, Bill Gates talking about pandemic coming. So there's been a number of different military and uh, CDC and also private companies, you know, doing simulations of how this could be played out. And in most of them, including in Event 201 and in lockstep, it ends up with more authoritarian governments. And, uh, you know, they basically sort of sell the notion that the governments that react more authoritarian more quickly are the ones that do best. You know, the ones that seal off their borders and lock down the country and initiate mass testing and contact tracing. It's pretty much in all the scenarios across the board described as that's who's going to do best. And uh, Lockstep also describes, because they talk about like a five-year period, and they say in the beginning the people are willing to accept the, um, you know, the authoritarian measures and the lockdowns because they are afraid, of course, and they believe this is going to keep them safe. But then after a period of time, uh, civil unrest starts to happen. They specifically say in the, in the United States, civil unrest, uh, you know, mixing with economic downturn and just the kind of burnout from the pandemic lead to civil unrest in the U.S. and other places around the world, and governments respond and even more authoritarian in response. And so it's just interesting because, as you noted, in every one of these exercises, they say that mandatory face mask wearing, um, temperature checks, temperature scan, lockdown, social distancing, all these things are described as responses to these imagined scenarios uh, that really match a lot of what we're seeing, including the talk of censoring viewpoints um, in the event 201 fake news segments that they ran as part of the exercise. They describe how some people believe the United Nations may have released this as a biological weapon. And they imagine, well, we're going to have to censor people. Maybe we can even arrest them. I mean, they really put forth some really insane ideas. And um, one thing I want to note on that before we, I know you want to talk about solutions, which is the important stuff, uh, is that since this time I've, I've, was passed along some information about this theory called parasite stress theory, which I honestly believe that these technocrats, it would be really difficult to imagine they are not aware of this theory. It goes back to 78, I think was the earliest reference I saw to it. And there's some books written about it. But essentially what it says is that um, when there are parasites or pathogens, including bacteria or virus spreading, that governments tend to become authoritarian. The people tend to become more collective and have a preference for obedience and also tend to shame out groups who do not comply with what they say are sort of the ritualized behavior that becomes necessary to collectively deal with a pandemic. And there I mean, there's just so much documentation and evidence of, in these uh, studies that I've written a few articles about. And they specifically say the researchers specifically say that the, their studies were only looking at perception, not reality. So a pandemic or a pathogen spread need not even be real or maybe as bad as they're being told. As long as they perceive it to be that way, they will tend to prefer and allow obedience, uh, authoritarian governments and tend to be more obedient. And I mean, it's really to me, I think that's just such a crucial piece of information to see that going back at least a few decades you know, and I found one of the researchers, I, I have a phone interview set up with him soon. He actually is a researcher that was funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and he's like one of the lead researchers on this. I don't know what that means per se, but again, I think it's it would be silly to imagine that the technocrats are not aware of this data out there. And if somebody was trying to figure out how they could manage or essentially manage the world and um, – maybe, I don't know, just grow their, their authoritarian ways. And they looked at all the cards they had on the table, apparently using the threat of a pandemic is um, 
is quite easy to get people to submit and to prefer card. authoritarianism. It's a great card, as we can see. What uh, Okay, what about solutions? I know in your book, How to Opt Out of the Technocratic State, you focus a lot on solutions, and it's a perfect conversation for this podcast because you really utilize the strategy of agorism as the means to the end of, of solutions. Um, could you specifically talk about COVID pass and what people can expect? It's already happening now, like in Singapore and in Asia, but what can we expect to see here in the West as this vaccine rolls out and this COVID pass stuff, and then what can people do about it? So, I mean, it's interesting. I put this book out January 31st of this year, and then about two weeks later, you know, the COVID starts going on, and I've sort of joked that I need to add at least one new chapter. I'm already, I've written it. It's called Agorism in the Age of COVID-1984, and talking specifically about this, because I was already anticipating that the technocracy was on the rise, that we were going to see social credit scores. We're going to see, you know, I didn't even know about immunity passports, but similar things that they're already doing in China. You know, people are denied the right to travel because they're, scores too low or whatever. Um, now, with the pandemic, we're seeing that being based on, well, you might be allowed to travel if you've been cleared of, you know, being uh, seen to have been recovered from COVID or totally COVID free. And if not, well, then you're going to have to be on some sort of mandatory lockdown for up to 14 days. And this has already started, not in the U.S. yet, but way back in March, you know, I interviewed some friends in in Italy and in France who were already locked down. And immediately over there, they started this papers, please sort of environment where you needed essentially permission slips to make sure you could still travel. And as you said, in China, they're already using QR codes. That idea has been floated in the UK as well. And the people who at the airports do that, um, that clear where you can skip the line at the airport with the TSA in the US, they're now they're working on the clear health pass. So that's similar to the COVID pass. There's multiple companies now who are getting into this new, I guess, uh, industry that's forming around this, immunity passports, QR codes, Bill Gates called them digital certificates to be able to, you know, get your ability to travel. And this is, I think, going to just become normalized in parts of the world and maybe some places that push back. Um, like where I'm at right here in noisy Mexico, it is not going to, it's not normalized. Like there are people out doing the masks, but nobody requires it and nobody is uh, threatening you. Meanwhile, back in the U.S. in Houston, uh, I received death threats for posting a picture of myself without a mask. I mean, so it's not only that there's these different changes going on. Somebody touched on it earlier, but there's the propaganda coming from the media and from these different sources that it's trying to change the culture and get people to quickly accept these things. So what I believe is the answer is agorism and uh, counter economics, like, which is already a strategy of opting out of the state's grid. And I believe those of us who are seeing this on the horizon um, can try to slow it down or stop it if, you know, as part of our action, but also can do our best to make sure we're not dependent on these systems. You know, I wrote this in the book that those who want to maintain privacy and liberty must be willing to adapt to constantly emerging technologies with the potential to liberate or imprison us. So, of course, technology is a tool. It can be for good things that help us, you know, maybe have a layer of encryption, but it can be the opposite as well. And I really think that, as you mentioned, immunity passports, uh, the mandatory vaccines, the potential for that, that a lot of people have questions for whether it's just because they believe in self-ownership or because they don't trust vaccines. At the end of the day, whatever it is, if I believe that if we don't take steps proactive in using things like freedom cells and mutual aid groups, then at some point there's going to be a knock on the door that says, like, hey, we're here to vaccinate you and your children. And, you know, we're seeing some insane things happen already in Australia and New Zealand that I don't think are out of the realm of happening in the U.S. I mean, already in the United States, 
there was a couple that one that we know of from Kentucky that had an ankle monitor placed on them because they refused to sign the um, uh, the voluntary uh, court, uh, quarantine agreements. They wanted to travel and basically they're like, okay, well, you tested positive. You need to sign this agreement. They said they're not going to. They went home. Next day, some cops show up with guys in hazmat suits and, you know, threatening them and basically put ankle monitors on them. And if they move more than 100 feet from their home, you know, the cops are going to show up. I mean, these kinds of things are already happening. And I really think that our best bet is to be proactive to start unplugging from these systems as much as possible and to build freedom cells that can proactively think about, well, what are we going to do if our city, state, whatever, passes this mandate or says to travel you have to do X, Y, and Z, rather than just waiting for it to happen, really being proactive and, and like I said, trying to be as off their grid as possible so that you're not necessarily dependent and you don't have to make difficult choices when the time comes. I'm wondering if they're going to take an approach in the United States. It's more of a back-end approach. For instance, I can see people getting letters from their health insurance provider. As you have not been vaccinated for COVID-19, we're not going to cover your medical expenses. Uh, we already have almost every healthcare worker in America forced into the flu vaccine, whether they want it or not, simply because they're not allowed to work if they don't get it. It would seem that there's an in- incredible amount that can be done to f- probably get 70 to 80% compliance that requires no one going to anybody's house, nobody putting a gun in anybody's face. I mean, except that 50% of people are just going to go, okay, and they're just going to do it anyway. So you might end up in a situation where it becomes a different yeah, standard, right? Good. Yeah, I know. I agree with you. I think that the vast majority of this is going to be done with social engineering, like you're pointing to, Jack. I mean, that we already saw, like, in the last couple of months, and this is insane to me that this is, you know, in the United States, but maybe it's not so insane. You had several doctors publish an opinion piece on USA Today, which I'm sure was in the print and digital version, basically saying that it's patriotic to force people to get vaccinated. And, you know, if you can't force them through the law, then, as you said, they, they said we should penalize people through their make their insurance premiums higher. Uh, you know, we should deny them the right to travel. We should do all these things that are more subtle. So people don't necessarily see the gun next to their head, but it is essentially going to make it where you can't operate unless you submit. Unless, of course, you are somebody who's proactive, you've got alternative currencies or you've got all these alternative networks to survive. Otherwise, people are and people are already making choices. I want to go grocery shopping, but I don't want to wear a mask. I don't trust it or I don't believe it, whatever. Well, I guess I'm going to do it just so I can get my groceries. And eventually people will, well, they say I have to get my vaccine if I want to go shopping. And most people will probably do it, especially if they don't see another way out or they don't see anywhere else, any other alternative, which I guess is for me, the whole point of this book is trying to say, like, there's an opportunity now to make an alternative, to create an alternative. But if we wait to that point, then, yeah, you'll basically be forced into that. Let's build it now before before we need it. I feel optimistic in some areas, taking the example of the health insurance. So there will be likely some health insurance companies that will say you can't be with us if you don't have the vaccine, or they'll say, uh, because they're right, there could be a lot of unintended consequences, or maybe it's intended by some sinister scheme. There's going to, you know, people are going to have negative health outcomes for years to come because of some experimental vaccine, and it is going to increase the cost of care for them. So they'll say either you can't be with us or we're not going to cover you. But even though we are, you know, in a total status paradigm when it comes to the market, 
there are still a ton of choices out there, right? And so maybe a good chunk of the big guys, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and Moderna or whatever, they'll go along like that. But maybe there'll be a couple other health insurance providers that say, we see a market for the estimated 35%. This was a poll, 35% of Americans that say they're not going to take the vaccine. And we want to cater to that market. And then alternatively, there's all these health shares, which we've talked about last week on the, on mm-hmm. the medicine one, on the healthcare episode. And so a health share, some are secular, some are Christian. It's not subject to all the regulations of the health insurance company. It's something different. And then further, we've talked about, and one of the goals that I have with the Freedom Cell Network is once we have a good number of people where it's scalable, we set up our own health share. And it can be an agorist one, ideally, or it could be its own company or legal entity to try to be a little more on the up and up. But we have these alternatives. And then there's that built-in check and balance that the market provides, whereby there's going to be a company that wants to make a profit. They're going to see that there's a whole lot of people, a significant portion of the population that don't want the vaccine. They can cater to them. And just like Walmart, right? Walmart originally came out and said masks are mandatory for everyone across the country, whether there's a lot, whether there's a mask mandate or not politically or legally. And then they backed away from that because at the end of the day, you know, they have shareholders to answer. Yeah. So I'm, yeah. I'm hopeful that at least it's not going to be total, you know, total damnation, total lockdown. And really, as I said before, I really think the powers that be overplayed their hand on a lot of this COVID stuff. And we're seeing massive resistance, massive doubts. You know, people are like Fauci, God bless him, said that he, he's having threats to his family and stuff. You know, like it's pretty bad Poor out guy. there for some of these clowns. And it's because a lot of people are just fed up with it. You know, I uh, I also wonder how much of this stuff is going to be subject to counterfeit it being counterfeited to, you know, here's my pass or what have you. One of the things I've heard, and I I haven't dug into this to know if it's just conspiracy woo-ha nuts or it's real, but it sounds like they're planning on uh, new vaccine technology. So, you know, the kid's not afraid of the needle or the grown man's not afraid of the needle. They're going to take a Band-Aid, stick it on, you peel the Band-Aid off. And this Band-Aid has these itty-bitty tiny micro needles in it that give the injection in a bunch of little, you know, ampules of injection instead of one. Well, contained within that is a a luminescent uh, gel that once it's done, basically it can take a black light or some sort of illumination and put it over the injection site and see little dots that would glow based on the pattern of those needles. Now, if you got really conspiratorial, that could even be in some sort of barcode or QR code pattern or something and, and scannable. But if you're talking about people being able to get into Walmart and Walmart shining a light on your arm, the greeter's like, welcome to Walmart. Let me see your arm. Welcome to Walmart. I love you, right? Um, it, it would seem like a guy with a tattoo studio could fix that shit up pretty quick. So, I mean, I'm just wondering, like, how There's much of this technology, because when when you look at, Something like cryptocurrency, for instance, if the government could have stopped cryptocurrency, they would have, right? I mean, when you get into a technology race, all of a sudden, our guys, our hackers in garages and basements can do things that even high-end government agencies can't figure out how to do as quickly because we have too many people working in too many ways. And I'm just wondering how much opportunity there's going to be for just basically not only direct counterfeiting so you can do something, but peeing in the pool to ruin it. I love that. That's because, great. yeah, I mean, if you can't swim in the pool, you might as well pee in it. I mean, that's 
Any technology that they have access to, there's no reason why we shouldn't have access to it as well. Like they can use encryption, but we use it more efficiently. Yeah. If you guys remember when, uh, I don't know if you remember this, there was that shooting in San Bernardino and the FBI was trying to get into uh, the shooter's iPhone. And I guess they they had a hard time doing it. And John McAfee went on like Larry, the Larry King show. And he's like, yeah, I can do it. And Larry King's like, well, how come you can do it? And the FBI can't. He's like, because I don't mind hiring some 17-year-old nerd uh, with a mohawk and pink hair who wants to sit at home and smoke weed all day. The NSA and the CIA can't do that. He's like, so I'll, I'll find the experts. And it just goes back to Jack's point about how these bloated bureaucracies are so inefficient. Yeah. They need more experts is the problem. Derek, can you talk to the quantum dot tattoo? Because what Jack was talking about, it's definitely not a conspiracy theory. It's it's legit, and it's Bill Gates funded, too. Yeah, it's a, another one of those awesome projects funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It's actually taking place in Houston, where I'm from, at Rice University, and uh, with a hefty donation from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I mean, he pretty much covered it. It is like what they term a micro needle um, that goes on your skin, and they have suggested – uh, in other forums, Gates has suggested some sort of digital tattoo. And like I said, they're talking about digital certificates, but also talking about marking the body in some way, which, you know, for certain religious people, it has implications to it. But I think that if, you don't have to be religious to have a problem with the government wanting to put another tag on you. I mean, some would argue, well, they already have a number for you, and now they just want to stamp it on you. And then you start getting images of idiocracy and being scannable or unscannable, right? And I think that that's really – not a far off, um, not a far off reality from from where we're at now, because they, you know, a big part of this great reset and the push that we're seeing towards technocracy is that most of the world is unbankable. You know, you've got poor people in Africa and parts of uh, South America, the third world that you know don't have an ID. So the first step, Gates and others say, is we need to get everybody on digital ID. So um, one of the contributors to my website, Johan, he's based in India. India now has this giant. Um, system they call the foundation where they scan the retinas of every single person, the billions of people in India, and now have them all in the system so that they can get them a digital ID, which they say is the first step to getting them towards a digital bank so that they can be bankable and help elevate their status and all these kinds of things. But the way I see it is that all of this, the, from digital IDs, passports, um, tattoos, and all of these things are about getting people on their grid and, and on their system. And as I was saying earlier, if, the, if you're totally dependent on that system, then those, and as Jack's pointing out, when they start saying, well, look, if you want to come back to work after COVID, we're going to need you to get this vaccine. If you want your kids to come back to school, if you want to travel, if you want to do the things that you're used to doing in your normal life, you have to make these changes. And if you don't have many options, then you probably will be forced to go along with that. And I don't know. I, I just think that it is important for people to see that the solution for me, it is, this is, Conkin's philosophy playing out like right now. He said that as the state became more aggressive um, and technology flourished, which he only saw the beginning of because he died in 2004, that as technology flourished, it would provide more opportunities for freedom and for liberation. But also um, in my book, the third part of how to opt out of the technocratic state is basically Conkin's. I reprint and republish Conkin's last final book that he never finished or published, which was just called Counter Economics from Back Alleys to the Stars. And there's so much knowledge in there that I tried to pull from. And, you know, he gives a lot of different strategies and tips. And he saw that that technology was going to be a, a source of the state being able to track and monitor, but also a source of liberation. And I think we're just kind of at that point where it's racing back and forth if it's going to be a tool for liberation or it's going to be a tool for control, surveillance, et cetera. And it really comes down to whether or not 
people stay on their grid or start creating these alternative systems that so many of us have talked about. Heck yeah. I got uh, CJ, I got something for you unless anyone else has any commentary. Um, can you give us a historical perspective? So I understand the tech technocracy came about in the twenties after world war one, and it was able to get a little bit of popularity before fading away. And from what I understand, some of that popularity and some of the push for technocracy be- came from the disillusionment with, wow, what did we just go through as as a human race? World War One, that was really bad. We need to do things differently. We should use experts instead of letting the people, which is really the oligarchs, run the show. Do you see any similarities between the way things were that uh, the environment that allowed for this idea to kind of take footing for a little while and where we are today with disillusionment or with war or anything that could create an environment where maybe something like this would be a little more acceptable than before? Yeah, the way I look at it is, is that people pushing certain ideas, they never go away. And they never, they never say, oh man, it seems like society and, and the majority don't want these these ideas. Instead, they just go, well, how can we rebrand these things and make them sound better and whatever like that? So I don't, I don't see that technocracy ever went away in the same sense that progressivism never quite goes away. It just morphs into different forms and appeals to different groups and rebrands itself a little bit in the rhetoric. Um, so I don't know. When I look at it, I see you've got the kind of early Woodrow Wilson era technocracy, which is kind of based on Hegelian European statism. And then that gets rejected, you know, with, with Warren Harding saying return to normalcy, which is basically code, code word for no more progressivism for now. Um, and then the progressives don't go away. They, they rebrand themselves as liberals under FDR. And, you know, when you look at like the popular narrative of technocracy, they say, well, it kind of went away in the thirties under FDR. And I go, FDR and the New Deal and the Brain Trust, that's technocracy. Like, I don't care if they use the word or not. It's definitely still the idea that you can just bring in experts and engineers and whatever and centrally plan everything. Um, and then that then is ensconced with World War II and the mobilization for World War II and having everything much more centrally planned for always in, in the name of fighting the war, we have to basically have, you know, socialism mixed with fascism. Um, and then, you know, what do you get after that other than uh, the Cold War? You get, um, you know, John F. Kennedy's best and brightest. That's essentially technocracy. Uh, you get, um, you know, Lyndon Johnson's administration is a bunch of technocrats. And, and it just never really quite goes away. And so I don't know. I, I, I just see much more more of a, a continuity going all the way through. Um, you know, they change the branding from time to time. They change the, you know, who specifically they're trying to appeal to more. But I don't think it ever goes away, this idea that if we just um, – again, it's, it's this idea of scientism, right, that, well, we just put the experts in charge and they'll be value-free and non-ideological and they'll just make rational it's, – it's the belief that you can apply the principles of engineering and mathematics, which are wonderful, for the questions and problems that those are appropriate for, right? But the idea that you can just apply that to human beings and – you know, everything's going to be fine. 
notice how if you question the science, you're you're a science denier all of a sudden, right? You're you're a, a blasphemer, in other words, because statism is almost like a religion. So just to question it puts you on the other side of of the mainstream. Well, as soon as you come at this from a standpoint of the experts, right? We're going to have the experts in charge. Well, they're smarter than you. You're not an expert, so who are you to question them? Yeah. And what, I mean. CJ dropped the word there that really is what we're talking about here is fascism, right? This is technological fascism. And, and where, where I see that going is I've always thought it's interesting. If you, if you actually look at it, it seems like communist regimes shoot more people than, than fascist or, uh, fascist regimes shoot more people than communist regimes. And I think it's because at least on the surface, fascism works a little bit better and not enough of them starve. So you have to shoot the ones you want to get rid of where communism is better at starving them out. And, and, and that seems like where this heads is selling. So what I mean by that is fascism, when you're not the one being drug away and things are working for you, looks pretty shiny and okay. If anybody's watched the, uh, the miniseries Man in a High Castle and you look at what the fascist Eastern United States looks like. It looks like, you know, 1960s America. All the women wear the pretty dresses and everything and all this horrors going on behind the scenes. And the way that you sell fascism is you sell the shiny to the people. And where I see all of this technocracy going is toward something that people have been throwing at me for the 12 years I've been doing my podcast. And it's always, you know, the leftist anarchist, which is hard to wrap your head around. Um, and it's resource-based economy, right? That's the word. That's the word I've been getting thrown at me since 2008. We need a resource-based economy. You need to watch this movie and listen to this Pink Floyd song and how the world can all be perfect and what have you. And you look at that, and the concept of that is that everybody, as a human being, it, it sounds so wonderful, right? And I don't want anybody to think I'm selling it, but everybody is a human being by their very existence, is is worthy of at least enough food and water and shelter and health care to exist, right? Like just by our existence, we, we are as, until we at least hurt somebody else, we're at least worthy of that. So there's only so many resources. So we should have this system that technologically determines that that Pete and and John and Sal and CJ and Derek and Jack are all equal beings. So we should all get our own little share. And that all gets decided by a computer, an algorithm, and then that way everybody has enough. And if there's a surplus, then maybe there's a market for that. But at least the basics, that way there's no Bill Gates and there's no, you know, uh, any of these, 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 you know, billionaires or, you know, Bezos about to be a trillionaire. Well, the thing is, you know, that if there's the one selling it, they're never not going to be a billionaire, trillionaire, gazillionaire, whatever, right? That's, that's never how that works. Every, one thing I think people need to understand, stop saying a system of government doesn't work. Every system of government that's ever existed worked for somebody, right? It, it, it gave, because what it was supposed to do is give control and order. And that's what this seems like that we're going to take. And instead of all of the doomsday kind of darkness that we're talking about a lot of times when we get into this, I think you have to be careful of that back-end snake oil sale of look how shiny everything can be. Look how, how everything can be so beautiful. And God, if our current generation coming up is not totally susceptible to that mindset. And the last kind of piece in that chess game is the way you get people to sell out to socialism, no matter what you call it, whether it's a national socialism, a global socialism, whatever, is you get them to need you. And the biggest way you can do that in the world today is debt. That's why they you know, started back in the 70s of pushing everybody to go to college 
And all of these people that are, you know, all these burnouts and whatever in, in, in that part of the political race, they're all up to their ass in co college debt. They can't afford to live. You put that together and you've got a recipe with all of this technology for people not to have to be drug into this, but to just to go into it with smiles on their face. Yeah. I'm glad Plus you brought up. grown up and never known a world like if you were under 30, you've never even known a world where this wasn't this way. Yeah. Yeah. Fascism incorporates just enough of market incentives that it can provide, you know, a certain amount of technological development. Like if you look at Nazi Germany, right? If you're part of the politically favored population and whatever, you had a pretty good standard of living, right? And you can't say they weren't technologically innovative, right? I mean, obviously much of it was for Terrible purposes. We hired them all. Genocide. Yeah, exactly. We hired them all. We brought them right? over to build NASA, right? Operation Paperclip. So, so in some ways, to me, that's the most dangerous of systems is always when you take, take the, the good parts of, of the market system and the incentives it creates and the profit motive and all these sorts of things and then harness them, right? For kind of the forces of darkness. Like that's, you, you see that a lot throughout history. I mean, um, like when, when the, for example, when the British took over the slave trade from the Dutch, right? Originally they had a monopoly, uh, operating it. They had the, uh, the British, I think it was called the British East Africa Company, something like, or British Africa Company, something like that. And for a while it kept the number of slaves limited because they were a monopoly and they were trying to keep the number, you know, the, the, um, the product limited so that the price would be high. Mm -hmm. And then after a while the British government undid the monopoly of the Africa Company and, you know, opened it up to market competition in the trafficking of human beings. And once you did that, guess what? Slaves became much cheaper because market and profit incentives were harnessed to this nefarious purpose. And so way more slaves started getting shipped across the Atlantic and they were way more affordable in the new world. Right. So yeah, we have to be careful. I mean, as you know, obviously I'm no fan of, of communism and all that that entails, but some systems are slick at taking the parts of the parts of the market system that they can use and harnessing them for their own purposes. That, that's exactly the point I'm coming at from from with, uh, CJ is that fascism, from an economic standpoint, it works better. So it, it, it's more sustainable. When you go full socialist long enough, you destroy yourself. Right? It's self-limiting. It's like a cancer that can't spread. You know, it only spreads so far and it either kill, it kills the host and it stops. Where fascism is more like a kind of a high-end virus that can continuously infect people and keep moving and growing. Yeah. I mean, in, in the grand scheme of things, it's, you know, it's not going to match like a genuinely free market sort of system, but it can do well enough to keep enough people satisfied. Right that it can potentially endure a lot longer, especially if it can, if it can be sort of smiley face fascism. Neo-fascism. Right? Yeah, well. yeah. Right? Yeah. What, uh, Sounds yeah. like what we have now. Exactly. It what is it, what we have now. I've, yeah. I've been called nuts for, I've been saying that for 12 years and I've been yeah, called nuts for multiple times. Like, there's, there's a great George Carlin quote where he says something like, you know, fascism is going to come to America with smiley faces and Nike Nike sneakers or something like that, you know. It's not going to be grumpy guys in black and gray goose-stepping around. It's going to be, Nancy you know. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer on TV smiling at a press Exactly. Conference. Everybody gets a cell phone. 
Hey, uh, I'm glad you brought up the Venus Project or the resource-based economy, Jack. I was actually yeah. literally looking at that right right there as you're talking because I think it's an example of technocracy, and the whole concept is that the resources are distributed through complex computer algorithms, and we just try – rather than experts, I guess it's the experts that do the coding. We just yeah. program, and I, you make a great point that it, that is like a nice, shiny veneer. And then when the Zeitgeist movie – documentaries were released that's when everybody they, went they nuts were really popular and like they made they mixed in a lot like a con they mixed in a lot of really good stuff but then as an agorist or a free market guy you're like wait a second <laughs> um derek you actually debated michael tellinger michael tellinger which does the ubuntu movement which has a lot of similarities to the resource-based economy thing can you talk about the your understanding of the venus project resource-based economy as it relates to ubuntu and then like what was the essence of y'all's little debate there because i know a lot of his stuff is like this volunteerism and everyone dedicates a certain amount of time and stuff it's a is it like technocracy also this ubuntu uh, uh i would say that the venus project is and the resource-based economy is closer to technocracy because like you said they have this vision of some perfect computer algorithm, you know, centrally planning everything for the benefit of humanity and um, all resources are distributed evenly and things like that, which to me, right off the bat, I have a problem with it because it's centrally planned. Somebody's going to be in charge of running that algorithm, running that computer. And, you know, I think all the same problems we've seen with communism, socialism likely would be entailed, maybe not. But either way, I think it's a dangerous step. And it's also one that's not, un, you know, they're promoting that as an alternative system, but increasingly, our world is being handed over to AI already. You know, there's already journalistic outlets that are putting out articles that people are reading every day that are being written by AI programs. And, you know, there's an increase in that. So I don't think that that's far off. And especially because you have ideas like uh, the universal basic income starting to go mainstream. But when it comes to Michael Tellinger and so his ideas is what he calls Ubuntu, which is an Af South African word, I believe. And I think it's something along the lines of community and he specifically called his system um, contributionism. And, yeah, I met him, and I think that generally he has a lot of similar ideas to, you know, people who care about decentralization, market anarchists, agorists, anarchists, voluntarists. There's a lot of common ground as far as recognizing, like, for example, he recognized the Federal Reserve is a problem. He recognizes a lot of the same issues that we see. It's just, of course, when you come to solutions that things start to diverge. And so I had a chance to sit down with him for about an hour. This was a couple of years ago, but give him like an opportunity to just break down what contributionism is to me. And as I listened, I started to hear certain telltale signs of like, okay, this sounds like something I've heard before, maybe in a new format. And basically what he said, and I also want to say like, there's a lot of good people that I've met around the U S who have totally bought into and embrace his ideas, contributionism. And he also promotes something called one small town movement, which is basically like telling people to move to small towns in the U.S. and take them over. You know, some ideas that we've talked about, like, you know, getting those people into positions of local politics if they want, or at the least influencing local culture. So, you know, he's got a lot of ideas that I think are interesting. But when it comes to contributionism, he has this vision of a world that uh, every single person is a producer and each person produces three of everything. So say you're, you know, you're a shoemaker. Well, you make one for yourself, 
um, one for the community and then one I think that's just surplus and it was sort of like that's kind of built in whatever your skill or trade is you're supposed to do produce three of those or provide three of that whatever that is and then they start you know he starts to get into like there's a council of elders and all these different things and so I started asking him like well what happens if one person says like you know I don't want to produce three like I have enough for me and my family and that's enough for me um, you know how is that going to be handled and it, it was kind of like, well, that person would be brought before the Council of Elders. And I'm like, okay, well, who are these Council of Elders? How did they get, you know, it just, it didn't seem much different to me than some of what we're already seeing. Um, it maybe was a bit more utopian and hopeful or whatever, but yeah. in the end, it just seemed like another form of statism. Yeah. Yeah. The problem lashes. with anything that forcibly redistributes any resources is that it always ends up back to force. They can say voluntary. This is where the leftist anarchists and I depart, where they're always like, but, you know, it's it's no state and it's voluntary. No, it's not voluntary because what if I don't want to do it? And I always yeah. find it interesting that when you're having a conversation with someone on the left side of anarchy and you're like, well, look, I'm totally cool with you having your system over there and me having my system over here. and Can we just leave each other alone? And it's always no, right? Anarcho-syndicism, all of that stuff on the left side is always no. Like you, you have to have everybody be part of it. It doesn't work. And I, I was recently trying to explain socialism to my wife. So I, I started looking to see if there's any documentaries, documentaries or anything. And not that I would call Fox News the the epitome of, 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 you know, truth and freedom. They had a pretty interesting documentary series. I've only watched the very beginning of on socialism, but it actually starts out in New Harmony, Indiana. And I bet CJ knows a little bit about New Harmony, Indiana. And, and basically, if there was ever a place that socialism was going to work, it was going to be New Harmony, Indiana. It was like a really rich dude bought a whole town from a bunch of people that were leaving, and anybody that wanted to could live there for free. And son of a, and this is like an, this is before the Civil War. And all these people showed up, and all these intellectuals, and everything's going to be so wonderful, and it all fell apart because nobody did anything. And so socialism without the force. I said all government systems work. Well, it depends. You know, for somebody, if you don't have force in socialism, it doesn't seem to work real well. And there are so many examples like that, too, of voluntary communes that fail because they, they lack the proper incentive structures. I mean, that's just the New Harmony from Proudhon to the Dukabors. The examples are almost endless. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's so many of those um Especially there was like a real boom in those in the pre-Civil War era, you know, a lot of those utopian societies in different parts of America. Um, but an interesting parallel that occurs in my mind is right now amongst the defund the police left and whatever, and it doesn't take very many questions to figure out that, okay, they might want to get rid of the existing police departments, <laughs> but what they want to replace it with is some sort of Orwellian nightmare, right, of police now that are also thought police, in addition to all the other bad stuff they're already doing, right? Um, they're they're not interested in, in really getting rid of policing, you know, state policing as we know it. They simply want to get rid of the existing one and replace it with some kind of, you know, uh, SJW version. Well, yeah, I think it, like when they start talking about like police aren't really the right people to send out to domestic, you know, disturbance or whatever, and they start talking about their their social workers or whatever handling that. What I actually see is some sort of an analog to something like um, child protective services, but it's for you, the husband who who said the wrong thing to his wife, and 
you know, I would rather have someone show up to my, my door from the sheriff's department. I'm not happy about it, but I'd rather have the sheriff's deputy at my door than CPS. Yeah. Right. CPS is a, you want somebody to ruin your life. Mm -hmm. CPS will ruin your life hardcore, you know, and, 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 and so I think all of these little additional like softer organizations actually are going to have more ability to destroy people's lives. And then coming back to where we are, technocracy. I mean, if you think about the technology getting added to that, because I would say this, if the technology that existed today existed in 1935, there probably wouldn't be a Jewish person left on the planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that, that's how dangerous that is. IBM. You got something, Pete Q, over there? Pete, on our Brady Bunch screen, you got something there? CJ talked about thought police and something that I foresee happening with something, with something like that. And what's funny is if objectivists and Randians got their perfect world, I think it would be the exact same thing, but I'll, I'll digress. Um, that's going to come with drugs. That's going to come with forced, um, forced injections of drugs that are going to alter your thought patterns that are going to alter your behavior. I mean, that is, it's going to be brave new world kind of stuff. It'll be a, it'll be more, I think we're headed more towards brave new world than we are in 1984 or a combination of both. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me second that and also add in to recommend to everyone listening uh, and any of my co-hosts who haven't read it, this perfect day, by Ira Levin, who's the author of Rosemary's Baby and a bunch of other famous things. This perfect day. If you want a dystopia that I think is even closer to where we're actually on the precipice of, this perfect day by Ira Levin. It's got the, you know, tracking of your movements. It also has the, the thought policing. It also has the, you know, the, the, chemical and other modifications to try and just, you know, micromanage your behavior and thought patterns and everything down to the level, right? This is a, this is a dystopia. I want to add to that. If I could is offensive. Briefly. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt you, CJ. Yeah. I mean, you point out something really important. I, I would also recommend to that list, uh, the, the book we, which is also kind of uh, overlooked in favor of 1984 and, a brave new world, but many people think that Orwell stole his ideas from we. Um, but I want to point back to which, what Pete was saying about, you know, the drugging and all the, it's, it's been written about, it's been talked about. And I just want to refer back again to Zabri- uh, Brzezinski's Between Two Ages. And he just this one specific quote, uh, first where he describes how this is going to happen. He says, more directly linked to the impact of technology, it involves the gradual appearance of a more controlled and directed society. Such a society would be dominated by an elite whose claim to political power would rest on an allegedly superior scientific know-how. Unhindered by the restraints of traditional liberal values, this elite would not hesitate to achieve its political ends by using the latest modern techniques for influencing public behavior and keeping society under close surveillance under control and under control. Under such circumstances, the scientific and technological momentum of the country would but would actually feed on the situation it exploits. And then just lastly here, they say the emergence of a charismatic personality and the exploitation of a mass media to obtain public confidence would be the stepping stones and the piecemeal transformation of the United States into a highly controlled society, which I think is pretty prevalent, whether you're talking about Donald Trump or some other maybe soon to be emerging charismatic personality. Um, A lot of what they described is where we're at now. 
Just to go back to Pete's point about them giving us chemicals to change the way we think, they're already doing it vis-a-vis the fluoridization of drinking water, right? That's already uh, is, a, is a chemical that they, they're they sort of medicating us without our consent, and that, that does affect the way we think. That does affect our brains and stuff like that. So How about corn syrup? I mean, yeah. you want to talk about altering people's brains and physiology, the, the standard American diet that people are consuming right now is is doing that. And if you want to ramp it up to like a brave new world level, you can just add something to the food supply. Exactly. And you might even mandate it or as subsidize a preservative it. or yeah. uh, like, you know, this, if you look at fluoride, like you were saying there, Sal, the, well, we need to protect your teeth. So I need to protect my skin from sunburn by drinking suntan lotion. Right. Like that's like, in, like you don't ingest a mineral to protect your teeth. That doesn't make any sense. But it's about uh, what Derek was saying about this gradual approach to this total control over your, over your body. Yeah. Yeah. And what you're making me think of, like we're, if we're throwing out, Things that are underrated. Um, there was a, Kurt Vonnegut did a, a short story called uh, Harrison Bergeron, and as good as it was, it was expanded into a kind of a different idea, a different, almost a different unit, like a parallel universe version. It was far more involved. Showtime did it, did it as a movie, and uh, the guy Sean Austin, I think is his name, the guy that played Rudy in the Rudy movie, that dude was the lead, and it. it had really good actors, and it won a bunch of awards, and then it just kind of disappeared and it's hard to find but it is on youtube you can watch it for free like an old 360p version of it and it really is i never thought of it before but it is a technocracy in that the the band that that varnegat came up with made everybody equal like so if you were too smart they turned your band up and they dumbed you down but what it did is it equaled it, it basically created an equality of resources and it's exactly what we were talking about earlier where uh wilson wanted the the be everything be more democratic but yet the administration was separate from the democracy and the politic where the people got elected like they would just randomly pick someone out of the phone book to be president and call up Sal and say, dude, you're president now. Wow. But all the people that actually ran things were the people that were so smart that the band didn't work on them and they were going to get basically a lobotomy. But somebody from the organization reached out and said, we're going to bring you over here. And they brought them inside this like control center that was basically a technocracy but it let the people like decide what they wanted it got to the point where like parking tickets you were getting executed for and shit like that and that one guy would say all the time when people would like the, the rudy character guy can't remember his name in this oh harrison here's harrison bergeron you know like well what about this guy? don't fuck with the will of the people so basically they were letting the people do whatever they want but under the control of the system and it's it's very much like what we're talking about sounds like today it sounds exactly like that. Yeah. Also, um, go rewatch Demolition Man. Yeah. Demolition oh, yeah. Man stay, yeah. it stands up very well. That's All restaurants are Taco Bell now. Yeah. Let's, um, <laughs> All stores are Walmart now. Take care, guys. All right. Thanks, Pete. Take care, thanks Pete. Thanks for tuning in with us. Um, I'd like to spend the rest of our time, because we, we want to wrap up as close to 530 as possible, talking about uh, solutions. But but before we get into that, um, and we can all just throw like Jack, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how homesteading, off grid, you know, growing your own food is a wonderful solution to the technocracy. Because if you're way outside, obviously this is really going to take place in the cities, right? And if you're just yeah. out there doing your own thing with your family and your your crew, you're you're still relatively unscathed. But before we get to that, bros, can you talk about the role that smart cities? And this 5G, 5G technology, right? There's a lot of controversy about the health implications, yes or no, about 5G. But really one of the big focuses that often gets overlooked 
is how 5G is going to amplify uh, and increase the effectiveness and efficiency of this track and control panopticon omniscience of the government. So can you talk about the smart cities movement and how that rolls into technocracy? Yeah, so um, like you said, I mean, it is part of, I think, the overall push to technocracy. And it's not just 5G. Uh, a lot of people, I think, who are skeptical of the concerns around 5G uh, might not understand that there have been concerns since the beginning of 1G and that there are, you know, not just the health concerns, but there are the increasing privacy concerns. But what makes 5G unique from those other generations, which is what the G stands for, uh, is the fact that in order for 5G to operate, they're using millimeter waves and sometimes something that's called MIMO, massive in, massive out. And for the most part, this, these are waves that are easily blocked, do not travel long distances. You know, these are the same waves that when you go to the airport and get groped or you choose to go through the body scanner, you're being exposed to them. But so for 5G to operate in the way that, that it's being promoted and described as and to be the backbone for what they call the Internet of Things, which is basically not just your phone and your computer connected to the Internet, but your smart TV, your smart fridge, your Alexa, all that different things, all of the cars, the homes, everything together, uh, what they're estimating millions of new devices will be connected to the Internet, what they're calling the Internet of Things uh, in one way or another. In order for that to operate, they're saying we need 5G and 6G and everything else that's coming. In order for that to operate, the uh, FCC themselves has said they're going to have to install hundreds of thousands of new cell towers and cell sites, what are sometimes known as small cells. They can be as small as like a backpack or as big as a refrigerator. Sometimes they're brand new infrastructure. Sometimes they're added to existing infrastructure. But the point is they have to install them literally in some cases on every single corner in order for uh, it to operate the way that they're promising people, which is going to be, you know, 4K downloads in seconds and Internet faster than you can think and driverless cars. And, of course, a lot of these things like driverless cars uh, and this technology is being promoted as the solution towards climate change. And it is definitely a part of the Agenda 2030 move towards smart cities. And that's kind of the big picture. We're already seeing this unroll in uh, Korea and, of course, China uh, Korea has some of the first cities that are become complete smart cities where, you know, the moment you step out of your house, there's a facial recognition camera that's tracking your movements. And the, if, say, you litter on the street, well, then the street lights, which are smart or the, you know, the billboards will put your face up and say, hey, this person just lost some points on their social credit score for littering. The idea that it's sort of like a public shaming to hold people accountable, to encourage the best citizens and, um, yeah, I mean, the places that have embraced this, including Estonia, is an entirely digital nation, one of the first ones to embrace completely digital currency and all that. You can really see as the model for where we're going. And then, of course, the aforementioned China and their social credit score, which some people still do not realize is not just an episode of Black Mirror, but is a reality that is happening already. People being denied the right to fly, to travel, to you know get on the bus because they didn't donate enough or because they donated to the wrong places or because they're on the internet at the wrong hours. And I mean, they have a very tightly managed society already in much of China. So we can kind of see where the potential is headed towards if um, some things don't change. Right on. Yeah, there is stuff. There's one, it seems totally disconnected from this at first, but there's a mixed martial arts fighter in China. He's not even that good. He's like a mid grade guy. And he started saying all of these Kung Fu masters and stuff were BS and started challenging them to fights. And he's beating them all. Like they're all terrible. They, you know, these are these guys that are doing their forms or whatever, but they don't actually know how to fight. Well, now they've made him keep fighting, but he has to wear like some stupid clown makeup and they lowered his credit score and he has to ride like the shittiest train to get to the fight or whatever. And wow. like 
So they're, they've destroyed his life basically because he dared challenge tradition, but they've used technology to destroy his life for challenging tradition. And that is like, yeah, that, that Black Mirror episode is in a lot of ways what China's like already today. And it's, it's, it's simply going to become more so. Um, you know, we talked about trying to find solutions here, but and, and going off grid, homesteading, producing your own food, having, you know, groups that you're part of, mutual aid, et cetera, I think is all a great idea. But I don't want to paint too rosy of a picture. I think that as you move, you talk about 5G and moving to self-driving vehicles, you're going to get to a point where everything you do in life is going to revolve around a cell phone and a vehicle. And I see that once you get to a point where the majority of vehicles on the road are self-driving, they'll start pushing all the non-self-driving vehicles off the road. They'll say that you're a danger. We would have perfect, no wrecks, no nothing. It's humans that are screwing it up. Um, and I think it might be the case that by 2030, at the latest, you won't even be able to buy a car that isn't self-driving. And I think that might be, that, that sounds like a long way off, but it might be overly optimistic that it will be that long. It might be by 2025, 2026, that you will not even be able to buy, just like today, you can't go out and buy a car without a backup camera in it, right? Or a third, you remember when they put the third light on the back for the brake lights? Like that was back in the 80s and they were selling them in stores. You could go buy one and install it yourself. And within a couple of years, oh, this is a good idea. It just got mandated. And I think that's where we're headed. And then, so you're getting to a point, well, sure, you can be okay on your little homestead, but if you want to go anywhere or do anything, you're going to have to go into their world. And it's 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 going to be a difficult challenge to meet. I just I I am hopeful as to what we can do with counter technology. I think that's where counter economics comes in. This is where Konkin's whole philosophy comes into play because opt out. Opt out. Don't do business with people that comply. So in other words, if you if you have an option, if you don't want to go to the grocery store that requires a mask and you have an option, Use your dollar. Vote with your money. That's the best way to engage in all this. And that's really what agorism is, right? It's all about it's about voluntary exchange and not having to be coerced into exchanges. I love it. CJ, you got any ideas on some solutions or things that people can do to push back or just be ready for what's coming, what's already here? Well, I mean, just in terms of overall strategy, um, my – my advice for what it's worth is always just to maximize your own um, versatility as an individual so that you can adapt, right? Like Bruce Lee said, be like water um, and adapt to what comes at you. I would recommend that, you know, when you're dealing with an immoral system, you deal with it in a very cold-bloodedly pragmatic way. Uh, in other words, I would say if there's ways you can interact with the system that benefit you without damaging you, then do it. I mean, if if you were like, let's say you were a professor of economics in the old Soviet Union and you had become convinced thanks to some black market reading materials that the free market was the way to go. Right. Well, if you were an economist in the Soviet Union, basically, unless you can defect and immigrate, you're working for the government directly or, you know, pretty much directly, really. And so but what if you could kind of fly under the radar and work for the, you know, the the state economics university or whatever, and you could actually get away with throwing in subversive ideas, right? And taking home that government paycheck. It's a bold approach. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell, and then tell your students like, Hey, this whole thing is kind of fucked, you know? Um, and, and so it's, it's, it's kind of like irregular warfare approach where it's like, 
you know, when I'm dealing with a, with an immoral system, I'm willing to sometimes use it when I can do it in a way that'll help me out or help my values out or whatever and doesn't harm anyone, um, you know, egregiously or unnecessarily or whatever in the process. So that's, that's just the strategic view I would take is like, sometimes you got to be ruthlessly pragmatic if you find yourself in a time and a place where it's not free. You know, I, I know we have to wrap up, but just real quick, I think as they become more oppressive and as they grow larger and larger, <clears throat> so too will grow the solutions and there will be more, um, more entrepreneurs attempting to provide market-based solutions to their tyranny. So that's really the whole, you know, as the state grows, so too does the free black and gray market. So I'm, I'm actually optimistic and I think that technology is our friend in the long run, uh, I think that we're we're going to win this, but it's not going to it's going to get worse before it gets better. Right on. I, I have. Could, a, could I just add to that, John? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. We got. I just wanted to say. I mean, I agree. With, I agree with Sal that um, we're definitely. And I know that you can attest to this, John. That even just since this whole pandemic has gone, and we're seeing the increasingly totalitarian, authoritarian nature. The Freedom Cell Network, both online and the website, but the idea has just grown like massively exponential growth, you know, just passing 4,000 people online from all around the world. And I know I've gotten lots of emails and messages from people who uh, in the U.S. and abroad who are both concerned with what's going on, but now ready to like, okay, tell me more about these Freedom Cells or tell me more about agorism or how do I opt out or, you know, starting to think about growing their own food and starting to think about pulling out of these systems or taking their kids out of school. So I do agree with Sal that the more they push it, there's sort of like that equal and opposite reaction. Yeah, some people might buy into it and become indoctrinated, but other people who might have sort of been on the edge start saying, well, hold up, what's going on here? This this might be a little too much. And then they start, what was that crazy friend of mine that was been talking about these ideas? Let me go find them and, and see what it's about. So, you know, I just want to throw that out there that I think there is some optimism. And then the last thing that in the book, for anybody who wants to check it out, it is downloadable for free. Uh, I talk about what Konkin discussed where he uh, talked about the idea of information flow, where he talked about it from the writing in the 80s saying like, hey, when you get a bunch of these, you know, basically what we would call spam, you know, the email or the, the mail in your your mailbox from all these advertisers, well, that means somebody's got your phone number and your address. These days, when you get a bunch of spam email, you gave your email address somewhere and those people are now put you on a list. And so Konkin said the goal should be to be the one who's in control of the information flow. So you can limit the amount of information flowing from you to the state or maybe corporate advertisers or whoever it may be, but making sure that you're the one that's consciously aware of what information you're giving out and what information flows from you to other people and, you know, just using that to be more aware because otherwise we are basically leaving a digital trail everywhere we go. If you're logged into Google right now with Google Maps, whatever, they have your location since you've been logged in, however many years that's been. So it's just about, I think, becoming more conscious and aware of the ways that in some of this we're kind of playing right into the technocracy. So we have to sort of reclaim our, our power in that area, I think. Yeah, I think that, like, when you don't need to be trackable, don't be trackable. We take the phone and put it in a metal case, and you can't track it. And I know you can't get a phone call in, but I've talked about this before with, you know, you can get something like an old-school freaking pager and have someone page you if they need you or something like that. Um, there are ways that you cannot be advertising where you are. As far as the government concerns, I, I, I pretty much never leave this room that I'm in right now because I don't, the kind of business I run, I don't really have a, like client emergencies or something like that. So 
I can be gone for half a day and the phone's sitting here. I mean, I, I'm not saying everybody should do that, but if you can make things more difficult for the people in power, do it. I try to encrypt almost every activity that I take, even if it's totally benevolent, because it utilizes their resources. If they want to spend six months on a brute force attack to find out that I sent my, you know, my, my, my sister-in-law a picture right. of a cat hanging onto a tree, let them go for it, right? That's fine. You know, that's great. Um, that's, that's how I want things to be. I want things to be difficult. So not be, you know, it's hard because you try to, we do have, so much opportunity in the world today. I mean, a lot of the things that we can do today are because of this technology. I know people that are hustling their way across the country because of, of you know, websites like like Uber and Lyft. Well, but that's also going to track, right, track everything you do. So we have to figure out how to balance that. And I'm not sure it's I'm not sure it's going to get any easier. Right on. All right. Well, man, we got we've talked about a lot of stuff today. Um, just for anyone that isn't aware of what freedom cells are. It's, I think it's a great solution to all this technocracy stuff, specifically like if you get shut out of the grocery store, you've already has, have a network of farms and people that trade food amongst themselves and seeds, uh, the health insurance, we can build our own health shares, for example, uh, employment, you know, you got 4,000 people, there's going to be people that are looking to hire people and not required to wear a mask or have a COVID pass and stuff. So it's just all about small groups of people working together and then networking with other small groups to the point where it's grown to 4,000 people. Now, not all that 4,000 people are totally active. That's just the people that are on the site expressing interest, but I think it's a great solution. And then I think it's going to take some money, but people pulling resources, but I just saw a story on activistpost.com about as like 19 families, they bought 97 acres somewhere in Georgia and they're going to build their own town essentially. So when you can get to the point where we have this little 20 acre spot here, 100 acres, maybe you travel amongst them and trade amongst them. But you got the general store, you got the naturopath living on site, you got the herbalist, you got multiple different avenues for food production and different gardens all over the property then maybe we don't have to go out and, and involve ourselves with, with the others, so to speak, because this, there, I'm, I'm seeing a growing divide between the normies, as some people call them, and then the rest of us and us agorists and radicals. And there's, a, there's, there's a growing tension too with this COVID stuff and your selfish a-hole, I was told recently, just for bringing up the CDC and World Health Organization's own numbers. So we may not want to involve ourselves with the outside world as much as, as we think, but we got to do something now. The idea that I want to leave with is go ahead and anticipate these changes. They are here and they are only going to grow and start thinking what you and your family and your community can do to be prepared for what may come. Right. Jack's little thing is like for if it if the shit hits the fan or if it never does. Right. We see this. This is happening, whether we like it or not. This is happening. We can try to change it. We can try to resist it. And we can prepare for, for what's to come so we can still exist with some semblance of freedom. So be know. able to produce something. I mean, that's my, my, like if everybody maybe give one piece of advice as we wrap up here, mine would be yeah. be able to produce something that's of value to somebody else. And, and I mean, actually be able to physically make something, whether it's food, whether it's tools, whether it's, I don't care what it is, but have something of value you can contribute. 
because these communities are a great idea, but they do not work if you have a majority of people who are putting their feet up while other people are pedaling a bike, right? Yeah. You've got to be able to contribute something of value to others, and that would be my number one thing because if we can do that, that makes all this crap we're talking about doable. And if you can't do it and you have a group of people and nobody can actually make anything, you're screwed because there's you, you need the inputs then. So you have to be able to make something from what you can gather, grow, scrape, trade for within your own networks, not across the Amazon network, you know. Yeah, yeah. We do a lot of skill shares in the Freedom Cell network. So it's like a hive mind sharing that knowledge and teaching teaching other people. All right, Sal, you got a quick tip or any uh, parting words there on what people can do, a little bit of advice? Um, I just, I guess I would just say to echo what I said a little bit earlier is just to opt out. Do business with those who you voluntarily, you, you want to do business with. Don't, uh, you don't have to, uh, participate in the system. Nowadays, because of technology, there is enough avenues available that, uh, you can sort of not have to subject yourself to the sort of technocratic state. So I would just say opt out and engage in voluntary exchange. Nice. Got any parting words there for us, CJ? No, nothing uh, too profound to add. I, I guess I would just say um, the the most important thing is understanding what things are and, and, and what the system is and what it's doing. And then kind of every individual has to figure out, given where they're at and what their, you know, their assets and their skills and whatever, you know, are, um, how best to cope with it. I, I don't think there's a one size fits all, you know, answer for everybody in every situation. Um, but I, I think if you understand certain like basic principles and ideas and, and strategies, you can then apply them to your particular situation. Right on. All right. At D bros live free on Twitter, the conscious resistance network. You, can get, you guys can get the, how to opt out of the technocratic state. You download it for free on the consciousresistance.com and then go to books. But let's show this guy some love and buy the book. It's only $12, really solid book. And then he actually brought out some uh, – previously, a lot of people haven't discovered the works of Samuel Edward Conk and this counter-economics. A lot of good stuff, and he mixes in some analysis and stuff like that. So he's really picking up the work of Samuel Edward Conk and bringing it to this new technological age that we find ourselves in. So you got anything to, to leave us with there at Bros Live Free? Uh-oh, he got technocracy out. Technology. It's him and talk, man. They, 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 they're unmute. You're on mute. Oh, we need the council of experts in here. <laughs> there, there he goes. goes. There he is. There we go. <laughs> I was gonna say, other than uh, other than reading Konkin and learning more about agorism, just be adaptable because uh, with everything coming, we have to be adaptable. Also, like Jack said, learn skills, trades. You know, be prepared. Don't just uh, don't just trust somebody else to solve things for you because uh, these are realities that are here, but I do think the more proactive and forward-thinking we are, the better off we're going to be. Thanks, guys. Right on. All right, this has been Unloose the Goose, the Agorist podcast, the Agorist super podcast, uh, episode 10, all about technocracy, but more importantly, what we can do to overcome the incoming technocracy. And I want to shout out again our Lovely co-host, Nicole, she wasn't with us today, although she's kind of waiting in the wings to end the live feed, but she has a Kickstarter going on. It's a custom Kickstarter. She's not buying into the big corporate Kickstarter that takes a nice cut. So it's kickstarthollerroast.com, kickstarthollerroast.com, H-O-L-L-E-R, 
kickstarthollerroast.com. She's an entrepreneur, so let's show her some love as well. She's almost reached her 18,000 goal. It's 16,170. I threw 40 bucks at it, so go in there and support uh, Unloose the Goose host. And until next time, keep on, keep on gaggling. Stay free. Peace. We're out. Thanks, guys. Unloose the Goose. We'll take no views. Your paradise run out of time and we've got no use.